Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. As the name implies, we review the week. What happened? We break it down. What does it mean? I gather some of my favorite local journalists together. Today, that means the stranger staff writer, Vivian McCall. Welcome back, Vivian. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter, Alex Halverson. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Bill. KUOW politics reporter. We're going to lean on you for a while here. Politics reporter, David Hyde. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for coming. Uh, By the way, we're uh, putting the show up on YouTube and Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio and you can uh, watch the show. So, as I say, elections were held across Washington. Voting ended on Tuesday. The results are changing somewhat day by day because the ballots are still being counted. So, politics reporter David Hyde, what should we know as of now, Friday at noon, What's going on with these election results? So progressive candidate Alex Hudson has just conceded. This is the, Seattle City Council. So, I'm sorry, Seattle City Council uh, race. This is for District 3, which includes Capitol Hill in the central area. Mm-hmm. Alex Hudson has just conceded to Bruce Harrell-backed Joy Hollingsworth in that race. Beyond that, um, this is I, the former Shamasawant seat for those outside of Seattle. That's true. Yeah. yeah. The, so that's so a sea change either way, but a more centrist candidate now uh, replacing by far the most left candidate in Seattle, if not the entire country, um, you know, on, on, on city in city races anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, the results that you see now on the King County Elections uh, website, I'm told, should pretty much hold. We don't know that. The results all, aren't all in, but that's kind of what the math is now suggesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for District 2, that's South Seattle. Uh, this is Tammy Morales's seat, and she is just behind uh, challenger Tanya Wu and may well catch up. I mean, it's on sort of a razor's edge in that race. If she does do that, Morales will end up certainly being the most left candidate on the 2024 city council. Okay. So overall, I'm going to get to the rest of our panel, but because the the main media storyline I've seen this week has been that the more centrist Democrats, we can talk about labels in a little bit, but that the more moderate or centrist Democrats won in, in the Seattle city council. Is that, how accurate is that? Yeah, that's accurate. And um, if we can talk about messaging for just a minute, the other storyline that you're hearing is that these candidates ran and won on messages about crime, concerns about public safety. Um, You know, my impression of that from talking to voters and then talking to some of these more centrist candidates is that we shouldn't read too much into that. And by that, I mean... When you talk to somebody at the ballot drop box, they kind of say and sometimes sort of an embarrassed tone, you know, I'm a little freaked out about public safety and I want something to happen about that. And sometimes in the next breath they'll say, but, you know, but I want to get at root causes and that sort of thing. So it's not like S- Seattle suddenly turned into Midland, Texas uh-huh. overnight, right? This the, 8% of people here voted for Trump in, uh, in the last election. Um, and I think you hear that also in the messages coming out of these more centrist or whatever you want to call it candidates where it's like hire more cops. But at the same time, they say at least we want to invest more in public health, uh, meaning mental health, uh, uh, drug addiction, those kinds of things. And so it's very much in that kind of establishment democratic tradition and that dual fold approach seems to be, you know, the sweet spot this year with um, with voters amplified, of course, by a boatload of independent expenditures and PAC spending and, you know, mostly from the real estate industry. But still. That seems like what's happened. Right. And I think, you know, something else here is that, you know, it's not Midland, Texas. I can tell you, I, I lived in Texas for much of my life. <laughs> Do you know there. Midland? I'm familiar. You're confirming yeah. that. Yes. But, you know, the solutions that they're posing aren't necessarily as realistic as a lot of people think that they are. You know, they're saying we want to hire 1,400 cops. Well, those cops may not exist because we have a national cop shortage. And we want to have those cops arrest people who are using drugs and throw them in overflowing jails into treatment programs that don't exist. This is something that we kind of learned in our SCCB meetings that a lot of the solutions that they're the strangers uh, this is the stranger board. yes that the solutions that they're proposing were not necessarily this like common sense thing because we don't have really the infrastructure that to handle any of these problems. You know, 
so we're moving from what you would say the voters' message is or isn't to what the practical effects of this election right, are Right, exactly. And I think a lot of people, they are going to the ballot box and they're worried about public safety. Sure. That's also kind of a base instinct. And I think that those are kind of conservative impulses, even if people think that, like, you know, I'm, I'm voting, like, blue here. Well, what's, what's the effect going to be on the people who are most impacted by the policies that they're going to pass? Perhaps really vulnerable people. Alex? Yeah, the public safety thing is really interesting to me because it's a really easy buzz phrase. I mean, politicians have used it forever, um, mm -hmm. local, state, national elections. Um, you know, one thing you hear a lot from the business community is they want like really swift economic recovery, especially like in the downtown core, um, Pioneer Square, the areas around the down core, downtown core. Um, so one thing about these uh, candidates that I'm really interested in is they're, they were campaigning on being the pragmatic results-based candidates. You heard that a lot. I think Danny Weston even put that in his column. You know, Seattle's favoring results-based candidates. Um, the cart is a little before the horse now because of that. So I'm just wondering, David, from the politics side, do you see more scrutiny on this city council for the next year or so to get things done more quickly? Or is that side of the political spectrum going to be able to wave it off? Oh, the mayor's not letting us do this. Oh, Blank yeah, isn't letting I us mean, do this. Yeah, there's going to be scrutiny right away from the stranger, which just <laughs> essentially lost this election. In a lot of ways, there's going to be scrutiny. There already is scrutiny, right? And absolutely. And, you know, they say, as I said, that they're going to invest in public health, right? Well, where's that money going to be com coming from? A lot of them also say they don't want to raise the jumpstart tax. They don't say they want to cut the jumpstart tax on big business, but they, they, they're not saying they want to raise it. So where's the money going to come from for these 400 officers and, and the rest of it? So I think the city is going to expect them to deliver on public safety, to deliver on homelessness, to deliver on these issues. And it's an open question, like, you know, what are they going to do? They say they're going to also make cuts, but, you know, we're going to see, um, you know, really how, how pragmatic and progressive this, this new uh, government is. By... Oh, pretty overwhelmingly approving the affordable housing levy, which voters also did this week in Seattle. Is that going to take financial pressure off the city to the point where the city can be more progressive on these other issues, or are they unconnected? No. I mean, it's a billion dollars, but it's like, what, 3,000 units or something like that? Yeah. So we've got 40,000 people with some you know, sort of um, concern about homelessness. I'm not quite remembering how many people are like homeless on the street in Seattle, but a lot. And so, you know, it's it's a it's a ton of money, but I don't I think it's uh, it's not going to solve the problem of homelessness. No, it's, clearly. it's not going to get us caught up. I mean, we've been <laughs> this issue has been present for decades. It's kind of like bailing out a, you know, a boat with like a McDonald's cup. You know, you're going to have a lot of trouble doing that with just one kind of progressive idea. Hmm. Uh, Alex, you, you're at Puget Sound Business Journal. We've 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 referred to this a little bit. How how happy are local business owners and donors right now in Seattle? I mean, judging you know based off of LinkedIn posts, which is where the business community <laughs> loves to congregate, uh, they're very excited. Um, John Scholes, uh, the downtown uh, Seattle Association CEO, had this um, long reply to Danny Westneat's column talking about how you know Seattle is a progressive city, but people don't want the progressive label anymore. They want... Danny Wesney was saying Seattle is no longer a progressive yes. city, yeah. and you're saying... And that... John Schulz was saying, no, we are. We just, we reject the progressive label with no backing, right? We want pragmatism. We want results-based again. Um, we don't want to send dollars to City Hall and not see results, which is fair in paper. But um, like David's saying, like, it's just going to take a lot of money and resources to solve these solutions. And if you're campaigning on cuts, on not raising the jumpstart tax, on being really business friendly, which um, nobody in the business community in Seattle wants the jumpstart tax. Um, so you're going to face pressure from that side to not ever expand that. Uh, it, it's going to be really difficult, I think. Why did business interests so outspent, if this is true, my impression is they really outspent, for example, uh, labor unions more so this in this election than usual. Is that right? Yeah. So correct. why is it's, that? It's a little bit complicated. I mean, labor, for example, last time, I don't want to get into too many details here, but heavily backed in 2019, Andrew Lewis, for example, in District 7, which includes downtown Seattle, he, he won with that group of progressive candidates. I think Andrew, over the last four years, kind of disappointed some of his progressive allies, and he didn't see that spending on his behalf this time. And now he's, you know, fighting for his political life against a more centrist candidate, Bob Kettle, and may well lose that one. Um, I also spoke to 
uh, realtors who put a ton of money into especially four of these races where they wanted the candidates to win. And what they said, at least, was essentially they, they want to elect more business-friendly types who are going to return their phone calls. Um, you know, they haven't felt that in the last four years with a more progressive council or that it hasn't been as responsive to them. Um, and that, you know, they're, but it's also ideological. Like, they want people who were, will address public safety in a more centrist way uh, because uh, their members believe that, but also because probably they think it's good for business, right? Think property values. Um, you know, they want a city that looks different than it currently looks and feels different, especially downtown. And we've been hearing that, you know, for, for a couple of years now, since the pandemic, at least. And to capitalize on voter sentiment. I mean, David said, you know, talking to people at the ballot box, even if they didn't quite want to say it, they out of their mouth sort of said, oh, it's um, public safety is a concern. Well, if you're a pro-business entity um, and you want friendlier business candidates, those candidates are probably also campaigning on public safety. So you're capitalizing on voter sentiment as well. Yeah. Um, so it's it's much easier to put those eggs in the basket rather than in 2019 when you have Amazon spending a bunch and then you have Amazon as the boogeyman. It, Martin Selig, these people, they, they aren't as big of uh, boogeymen as Amazon is. And I would also say that realtors are probably likely to dump a bunch of money into a race because they don't want to increase density because they have kind of an interest in selling single family homes. That's certainly something that's going to benefit them. You know, I mean, does more units also benefit them or or, or they, they got enough work? They got all the work they can handle. They want the higher commissions for more rare I think rare the higher commissions are, are going to benefit them. I, yeah, I, I agree with you, but I yeah. think it's not. Even on the on the left or the right nowadays, it's not so transactional. I think it's become much more ideological. I think so. Too. Labor unions actually care about certain kinds of solutions to homelessness, et cetera. And I think realtors, you know, they they have those values. And if you look at the specific candidates, like Joy Hollingsworth in District Three, I think said she's totally open to rent control, for example. You know, which is not something that realtors want to see. Uh, you know, and so I actually asked them about that. Like, how, why are you backing candidates that don't share your philosophy. And it was like, you know, there's a lot of other considerations, you know, in this race, some of the ones that we've already talked about. And to kind of get on that point, some realtors kind of do want density. You see like a company like Ani, which is pumping a bunch of money in South Lake Union because they're building residential towers, they're building office towers, they're building mixed use projects. Um, So sometimes it's interesting. You do talk to developers who like the idea of building up to the sky because then they can build more buildings up to the sky. Hmm. Uh, I I mentioned at the beginning of this that when we say in short form that the centrist candidates want or the moderate candidates or whatever, um, we should do listeners a service by, ta- by saying what we mean. What, what do we mean in Seattle, especially in Seattle, when we say in 2023 that a politician is progressive, moderate, centrist, liberal, right left, far left? What do we mean? Uh, so I got I got some crap from a listener <laughs> saying, you know, that I shouldn't be calling this slate of Bruce Harrell backed business backed candidates centrists. I I I think it's imperfect. I mean, labels are always imperfect. And, and within that group of centrists, there's there's some big differences as well. What I kind of mean by it is there's a progressive group. There's a more for Seattle towards the center group. And I'm trying to sort of make that distinction so that voters can figure out, you know, how to make up their minds. This particular letter writer was saying I should become right wingers, which doesn't make any sense to me if I'm trying to communicate accurately what these candidates at least say they're going to do. But I could be wrong about that. Well, you know, I I think that really when you look at the entire slate, everyone has kind of moderated. If you compare the selection compared to 2019 and 2021, you know, they've all softened on issues like cops or taxing the rich. So I, I don't think that all of these candidates are necessarily these like far left. And certainly I would not say that, you know, candidates who want are necessarily right wing, but have they accepted donations from right wingers? Yes. Uh, are there right wing people who want to see their ideas employed in the city? But what yes. do you mean by right wing when you say that? What I mean by right wing? Yeah. I mean, like, if you're talking just, it's hard to, I'm not going to define the politics of each individual person. Mm. But lots of people who donated to Trump are also donating to these same, you know, candidates. Well, like George Petrie, uh, who donated to the PAC that supported Bruce Harrell back in 2021. He works for, I think, John Goodman, Goodman Real Estate. And he's in part a big Trump donor. He's also donated to some Democrats, but mostly to Republicans. But that same PAC had like Jim Senegal, former head of Costco, who only donates to Democrats as a part of it. So, you know, and then it became an issue in the in these races where it was like, does how much does that tarnish or 
what does that say about the candidates themselves that that Trump-backed person is backing them? And to me, it says we got a range of people in Seattle, and here's somebody on the far right. And if they have to choose between somebody in the center and somebody further left, they're going to go for the more centrist candidate. It doesn't say I'm anointing you like a MAGA person, right? And that's not what you're saying either. No, I'm not saying that it anoints anyone. I'm saying that they do want to see those things happen here for a reason, not just because they're like, gee, I hate both of these candidates, but this one's just a little bit better. They want to put money into the race because it benefits them. Let's see. I'm thinking of stuff we haven't because there's so much election related uh, news this week. We haven't even talked about the the news. As, again, it's we're, we're taping this on Friday. And I at least I heard this. I think I heard yesterday that U.S. Representative Derek Kilmer is leaving. He represents Olympic Kitsap Peninsula and Tacoma as well. Um, and then I heard this morning that uh, someone else is running already for his spot. And it's somebody who was running for governor. So who wants to fill us in? Uh, yeah, uh, Derek Kilmer, uh, he represented the district I grew up in, uh, which is part of Kitsap County, grew up in Port Angeles. And yeah, it was, I think, a surprise announcement, David. I, I don't know if you po- follow politics. I'm always but, surprised. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Derek was always viewed as uh, someone who's in politics for the right reason, right? He was a Democrat, but he, you know, um, focused on rural issues because there's a lot of rural parts of that district. And um so now he said he's out and it doesn't look like he's returning to public office. That's not at least what his He statement. wants to spend time with his family. Yes, yes. Wow. Um, yeah. So I'm now, surprised. Never heard that before. Yeah. So now if we can figure out where Hillary Franz lives, we'll nail down, you know, how she's going to run for that district. And- yeah, we, we need to catch people up. <laughs> Hillary Franz, who's the state public lands commissioner and is one of the best known candidates for governor, um, is no longer running for governor. And what, what's the import of that? All right, so Franz running for governor, um, now dropping out of the race. Uh, to the, run for Kilmer's To run for Kilmer's spot. seat. Apparently, he's also backing Hillary Franz, yeah, right? he endorsed her today. Um, uh, she says she's running on issues like climate change, inflation, abortion, which is going to be a huge issue for Democrats, you know, in 2024, just like it was in 2022. So the question is, you know, how, you know, what about that race? But how does it affect this governor's race? And yeah. uh, Jim Bruner's got a great story in the Seattle Times about this. Obviously, Bob Ferguson, you'd think, would be kind of happy because he's a Democrat and she's out of the way. And he's that's our state attorney general state and attorney the front general. runner uh, currently for the yeah. to, to succeed Governor Inslee, who, the is presumed, not, who is leaving. The presumed, the presumed front, front, runner. front runner. Yeah, he's got the most money. Okay. Um, Sorry. Yeah. We've also got you know, uh, former Congressman Dave Reichert, Republican running. So that's the big name there. Some lesser known candidates on the Republican side. But what Bruner's analysis suggests is that the big issue here is that this affects um, Mark Mullet, a Democrat who was kind of running in the same more moderate Democrat lane as Hillary Franz. Now this is going to open up the uh, spigots, the floodgates for Mullet to be able to raise more money and present a challenge for Bob Ferguson, which You kind of think like, you know, how is Mark Mullet ever going to beat Bob Ferguson in Washington State? But what might happen is what it's remember, we have top two primary. So what if it's Mullet and Ferguson in the general election that Riker doesn't get through? It doesn't have to be one Democrat and one Republican. Yeah, we could have two Democrats. And so at that point, then all the Republicans end up voting for Mark Mullet. And, you know, maybe it's a real race. Hmm. Okay, anything to add to that? Covered it. Uh, We haven't mentioned I I found it interesting that uh, in Tacoma, the renter's bill of rights is virtually even. I think it's pulled ahead by like 400 votes. That Is that significant, Vivian? Think? I think that that's totally significant. I, I think that it really shows that, you know, more lefty politics are not really just going to happen in larger cities. And they really follow where workers are, where people who will benefit from these policies most are, who want to see these things happen in their cities. I think that Seattle is often labeled as like the progressive city, but I really think that Tacoma is one where they've really started to do things very right in the last few years. And I, I, I think that Tacoma is a really interesting city to watch. When you brought up this point in our notes that... Um, Let me just of, fill oh, up. Oh, I, I want to get there. I just want to tell listeners who are saying, what's a renter's bill of rights? I'm going to summarize it. This bans evictions during winter and the school year. It requires landlords to give tenants more notice of a rent increase. And if a tenant wants to move out because of it, rather than pay a rent increase, the landlord has to pay part of their 
relocation cost. And again, I don't know whether this will pass or not, but but it's very, very close. It's doing well. And it's slightly yeah. pulled ahead. Well, and if, if realtors won in Seattle, they may not have won down in Tacoma. Yeah, uh, you brought this up in your notes that progressives and maybe some left-leaning people, especially in the working class, are getting pushed out of Seattle more and more. And Tacoma is, for now, cheaper than Seattle, much cheaper. Um, so you just have a lot of that class moving down south to there, right? It It's close enough to Seattle. They can commute to Seattle. They can work in the region. But you're getting much more of that uh, working and progressive middle class. Final thing, uh, election-related, that we haven't discussed at all, which may be okay. I'm not sure how much it really matters, but the ballot counting was slowed down. I don't know if it still is or if it's back up to speed, but there was a pause. There were some evacuations because in King and Pierce and Skagit and Spokane— um, well, let me. This is. I'll, I'll let the Skagit County spokesperson Jen Rogers tell you about a worker who made a discovery there. She just barely peeked inside, um, and she saw that there was a powder. So she immediately bagged up the envelope with the powder inside. It didn't dump out anywhere, and she reported it to the authorities, and they evacuated the office. White powder with the in envelopes uh, went to those places. The the envelopes tested positive for trace amounts of fentanyl. They got, um, at least King and Spokane got similar envelopes in August. And in at least one case, the bulk of the powder was baking soda. What else should we say about what this means? Well, the, there were these letters that came with these envelopes. And I don't want to say who sent them. It's, you know, unclear. Though, I report on the far right quite a lot. That's part of my area. And if you have a a piece of paper with an anti-Nazi symbol, an, anti- an LGBTQ flag, and then a pentagram saying that this is sort of the far left. That's a little suspicious. It's a little on the nose. Yeah, it's a little on the nose. The font's a little on the nose. Um, so I think, you know, uh, Daniel Walters at Investigate West uh, said it really well, where he said the letter didn't pass the ideological Turing test, which I think no. is says it all. The pentagram is <laughs> a bit much. The and pentagram the is kind of, it's, yeah, it's wild. And the message said... <laughs> Doesn't everybody use the pentagram? What? Oh, yeah, of course. The, the, the printed message was, end elections now. Stop giving power to the right that they don't have. We are in charge now, and there is no more need for them. Yes. And also, I think the idea that fentanyl is going to cause an immediate overdose is also an idea that's a little more popular on the right. That, <laughs> that has no basis in reality. It doesn't happen. Yeah. The, this ha- and by the way, it wasn't just us. Uh, some of these letters arrived other places in the country. Right. And in Atlanta, the, the, the Georgia Secretary of State said some people like to call fentanyl a drug, but it's actually poison. It will kill you very quickly and very easily. Now, uh, Brad Raffensperger's uh, lost. They he lost his son like five years ago due to a fentanyl overdose. Yeah. So I don't make light of it, but you know it's as you say. You have opening to take an, it. A tra- an envelope yeah. with a trace amount of fentanyl. Yeah, you not- have to take it, not touch it, look at it. Yeah. You know, think about it. it. And this happened in the primary here too. Yes. Um. You know, two things. One, just this sucks. We're heading into twenty twenty four. This kind of thing is just like bummer. They're able to shut down ballot counting. Right. By or sending slow, talcum powder slow in some cases or whatever it was, you know, yeah. sometimes fentanyl. Um, and my other thought was, yeah, I mean, it seems like who knows, but pretty yeah. <laughs> a really inept <laughs> effort by somebody on the right to uh, pretend to be somebody on the left or a clever person Ooh. on the left. I, ah. I saw this online. I didn't, you know, yes. uh, you know, pretending to be the right, spoofing the, the left, you yes. know, because it's so ineptly done. Right. Um, the intrigue. Unlikely, but. Uh, we, we don't know. We yeah. don't know. Okay, that's that's our top story. Um, any? Do we do we feel like we covered it? We can take no. a break and get back to more. We news can go for like week? two more hours. Come on, politics, David, David, reporter David Hyde, well able to go another week uh, with this story. But we are going to pause here we're, since we're talking about um, you know the politics of Western Washington. Uh, Vivian, you are writing a series about trans people who are drawn here by our politics compared to their home states. When we After we come back from the break, we want to discuss your, your series. Super. That and more on Week in Review when we come right back. Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson, teaching a weekend sgraffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. This podcast is free, and it's accessible to everyone, thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, 
Please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give, and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks! You are listening. You might be watching on YouTube or Facebook, but you're surely listening to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and I'm with Puget Sound Business Journal's Alex Halverson, KUOW's David Hyde, The Strangers' Vivian McCall. And Vivian, as I say, you're writing a, a series about trans people who um, leave, where they're, leave where they're from, uh, come here. These folks are all different, of course, but are there common themes in the why and the how of this migration goes? Certainly. So to establish, part of the reason that these people are leaving, you've probably likely heard of this, there have been hundreds of anti-trans bills that have passed in the United States this year. More than 500 have been introduced. Um, I misspoke, not hundreds passed, hundreds introduced. There are a handful that passed, but the ones that did have really affected the way that people can live their lives in those states. Florida is a really good example. They passed a law that um, really restricts bathroom use in a pretty serious way, including in kind of all state government-owned buildings. Like, imagine how many buildings that is that you can safely use the bathroom. And if somebody, figure of authority, asks you to leave and you don't, you can be charged with a misdemeanor. Uh, probably the most, it is the most serious bathroom law in the United States. There are laws that are restricting the health care of children primarily in bans and then de facto for adults, particularly low-income ones, because uh, there are prohibitions on Medicaid spending, for example, being used for any sort of trans-related care, which is then you know, going to yank people off of their care who then have to go to other states, drive seven hours to go get a vial of, of estrogen, for example. It, really serious stuff and a lot of fear, too, because even if you know, the most severe laws that were introduced were not passed, it has created a discussion around them, and it has invited a certain scrutiny onto their appearance where people are looking for trans people. They're afraid that somebody is going to target them. In some cases, they've been subject to additional harassment. Um, it's a huge weight. I mean, if, if you're not a transgender person or you're not a person who's ever been directly targeted by a law, I mean, put yourself in the position of all, all of a sudden, many state politicians saying that there's something wrong with you, there's something that's evil about you, like exact words, or in the case of Florida, demons and imps in one lawmaker's case. And they're going to restrict your civil rights in a serious way, and there's really nothing that you can do about it. Moving to them seems like the only option. The reason that they come to places like Seattle or Chicago or Portland, Oregon, is that they are going to um, have some state-level protections, but mostly they don't have to worry about these things happening to them anymore. It's not really that they're seeking this sort of like promised land or something. It, mm. it really isn't like that. It's, it's a level of neutrality where people are not coming after you. Um, I've been talking to these people for a long time. I started in May and uh, called them pretty often, kind of kept up with the developments as laws passed, as laws failed. As, uh, you know, the seasons of their life have changed, as they have made these plans and succeeded in these plans. And um, they're all really um, impactful and, and deep narratives. And in some cases, they've come to Seattle. There's uh, one trans man I talked to named Michael, who moved to Florida for a relationship um, that didn't quite work out and did not know that Florida was passing all these anti-trans laws because he didn't live there. And then he had to get out very quickly. I talked to a woman who helped launch Artemis One, which was the dry run for the moon mission next year. And she had to leave the state because of the bathroom laws and because she wasn't sure if she was going to be able to get her medications. You know, the, these are really profoundly affecting people's lives. And one one theme that was easy to pick up is the theme of money of the of whether who can who can come to Western Washington or any place else. Absolutely, because you know this is not a cheap place to live, and I think that's a, a wall that a lot of people are running into. The places that are going to be most safe for transgender people who uh, statistically are more likely to be poor because of social discrimination. 
um, are really expensive, mostly coastal cities. Uh, they don't have the money to begin with to move. And for most of them, you know, if they didn't have a great job, and I've talked to a couple of people, you know, next week I'm putting out a story about a really successful corporate employee who's made plans to move to Seattle or working for NASA pretty or working with NASA, pretty cool job, pretty good job. But if that's not you, if you're a college student, if you just have a regular minimum wage job, you got the luck of the draw. Like maybe your fundraiser on GoFundMe went viral on Twitter because you had a friend who was sort of famous on Twitter. And if that's not you or you don't have those social connections, you're stuck. But there is a kind of informal network of, I don't know if network is the word, but of fundraisers. That's a thing. Yes, that's totally a thing. It's been, it's kind of a cultural thing in the trans community. Mutual aid. Yes, yes, mutual aid. I mean, there's kind of like a joke I've talked with my friends about that it's kind of like trans people are passing around the same $5. (laughs) Because we don't have a lot of money, but there is this sort of cultural ethos of helping people out. You give what you can. You donate to fundraisers for people's surgeries for uh, their rent, if they're behind on that kind of thing. And we've seen a real transformation in the last year of people using that same service to get out. Uh, in in Texas and Missouri, uh, you had increases in LGBTQ fundraisers on GoFundMe in like the you know, 225% increase from last June to this June range or in that first half of the year. And in Florida, it was over 1,700% increase in LGBTQ-related fundraisers in Florida for the first half of 2022 compared to the first half of 2023, largely attributed to these uh, laws. Vivian, where can listeners read your series? Uh, well, you can read it at thestranger.com. Uh, it's, the series is called Forced Out. Um, so if you search that, there's three of them out, and there's another one coming out on Monday. Thanks, Vivian. Of course. Uh, Vivian McCall. Uh, we're, we're reporting on some of the news of the week, and you can catch uh, uh, some of that series from previous weeks and this week, next week. Um, and another topic I want to talk about is uh, I, want, I would like you to take the lead on this, Alex Halverson from Puget Sound Business Journal, is this, this latest in Starbucks and its unions because the, our, our, our local coffee company is uh, increasing some pay and benefits for most of its hourly workers in the U.S., but not all of those benefits will go to unionized workers. Why is that, and can Starbucks do that? Uh, they can, and they can't. It, it's it's really weird. Um, there was an NLRB case. Um, National Labor Relations Board. Yes, thank you, um, where they said uh, Starbucks violated um, you know, labor laws by doing this kind of stuff. And uh, uh, a judge ruled in the NLRB's favor, um, but Starbucks appealed it and like all litigation that's going to take a while. So in the meantime, Starbucks is going to keep doing this, which has kind of been their tactic. Um, a colleague of mine, Joey Thompson, we did a story last year about the sort of anti-union, union avoidance, union busting tactics of two of Seattle's biggest companies, Starbucks and Amazon. And you have Amazon, which is spending millions of dollars on labor consultants to go to warehouses and talk to people about unionizing. We know where that goes. Um, Starbucks isn't doing any of that. They're doing different tactics like shutting down stores, um, laying people off, all these things where they can couch it in, hey, that store wasn't performing well. And sometimes that's a good defense, right? They're closing down stores in cities, which don't make a lot of money compared to stores like drive throughs They're uh, laying off employees, but they can say, oh, those were employees who were showing up late or violating you know, terms of their employment. So what Starbucks is doing is just sort of flooding the NLRB with all of these complaints and lawsuits and just waiting on this sort of, you can't get us for white collar crime because it's we're going to wrap you up in le- years of litigation, which is a big tactic by corporations. Amazon does it all the time. A bunch of companies do it. If but you- Starbucks is saying that the, that, that, these benefits, some of them have to be negotiated with the union, and there's no labor agreement at these hundreds of 300-plus stores that are unionized. Yeah, because yeah, they're avoiding uh, contracts with the unions, right? It's, it's union avoidance is what one person put it in The Guardian a few months ago on Starbucks's part. And what do, is it? How, how legal is that? I mean, I know there was a, a, an NLRB judge, administrative judge, ruled against Starbucks on something that sounded similar to me a couple of months ago. I just I want to know like what can they because if they don't unionize workers they don't have a contract if they were to 
walk out? Could Starbucks run those stores with non-unionized workers? And if so, why would the company come to a labor agreement? I don't really understand. Well, that's what kind of what Starbucks is banking on. They're saying, okay, well, we'll just hire people who aren't unionized and, you know, we'll bear the brunt of the scrutiny from NLRB. Um, if this person files a complaint against us, well, we'll just wrap them up in litigation for five, six years. And, you know, we're going to kill the momentum of this union is sort okay. of their tactic. Okay. And it's working. It seems like this has kind of been Starbucks's strategy from way back when. I mean, back in the 80s, I can remember friends of mine working for Starbucks down in Portland, and they paid a little bit more than other coffee shops, and there was benefits and that kind of thing. And yeah. so, you know, and I was um, thinking that it reminded me of uh, Henry Ford uh, back in the teens when he started, you know, making Model T's. It was a big deal. He was paying people $5 a day, which back then meant they could afford to buy cars. Mm -hmm. You had people lining up outside the plant to, you know, get these jobs and like fighting one another basically for them. But it also meant that Henry Ford could avoid unionization. So it's been a long time kind of corporate tactic to kind of sweeten the pot a little bit. And, uh, you know, the 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 issue, though, was for those workers when the Depression hit, they were all basically thrown out of work. So we'll see how it works out in the long run for, for Starbucks and folks that work at Starbucks. And these laws and these federal agencies don't have a lot of teeth, you know, going up against these giant corporations. The NLRB can tell you to stop something. They can fine you and everything. But at the end of the day, I mean, Starbucks is a massive company. Like, it's just it's hard to go up against that, especially when they can just wait you out, which mm. is what they're doing. Is yeah. there any indication that their behavior toward the union has affected uh, their bottom line at all. They just had a good report, didn't they? Yeah, they had a pretty good report. Those things are, when companies are that big, it's that's always so sticky to get into what this causes yeah. of right. their bottom line because there's so many different factors. I don't think so. No. What do you want, I guess? Okay, um, another story before we take a break I want to get to is our state ferry system, which is jacked up. At, boats are not on schedule, but... At least you can go online and find out exactly where your boat is at any moment. Whoops, you can't because somebody cyber attacked the website. What happened there? I didn't get into the full story, but yeah, it, it pretty much just shut down the WashDOT site, all of their live trackers. Um, Traffic cams were down for a yeah. while, their, their, their maps, their mobile app. Um, I used to be a ferry commuter, so this would have been devastating in 2019. Because you, know, you, you can track where the boat is, yeah. not only just the times, you can track when it's going to come in, when it's leaving. Yeah. Um, the times, the schedules doesn't do you a lot of good lately. No, especially with ferry shortages, crew shortages. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it was not good. Why would somebody want to hack the ferry system? They hate boats. They just hate, they hate boats. Them. Yeah. Kicking them when they're down. Was there a, is there a white powdery substance on the ferry decks or something? Also, um, ferry users would like to know, are things going to improve soon? Do you know whether there's any hope of more boats coming online or coming out of repairs or anything like that? I don't think so. The Seattle Times has had some pretty great coverage of this. The bottom line is they, they have no boats. Well, they have boats, but they need a lot more boats. They're losing boats, and they need money to get those boats. And and people, right? The Well, they actually had a report that the boat shortage is so bad that the crew shortage isn't even a big deal right now, um, oh, wow. which feels pretty devastating to the system. That's saying a lot. Yeah, and they're, you know there's a budget shortage, and they had a problem for a long time where they had to build the boats in Washington. Um, the legislature changed that last year, so now they can hire, you know, they can bid out the job to out-of-state people. So hopefully that'll liven up the pipeline, but it's going to be a while until we get more boats. And only within the U.S. still, Yes, I think. Like, so Louisiana or something yeah. is, is a place that builds ferries. Still but limited. we can't go to Romania or whatever. Like, the B.C. ferry system, you know, has been turning to... Oh, really? I think, I don't know about Romania, but somewhere that's not within Canada mm-hmm. or the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, they had a similar law, you know, saying you could only buy boats made in Canada and had similar problems and then sort of opened it up. And, you know, I, I think they still have problems up there, but they have a lot le- fewer problems as a result of that. And mm-hmm. it's just I, just to me, it's just one more thing here in Washington state. We're so wealthy. Amazon, Microsoft, Boeing go down the list compared to other states. How is this possible that people aren't able to like get to their doctor's appointments if they live on Orcas Island and and some of the San Juans. And and let me tell you, think of those places as only rich people. It's not true. There's year-round residents of all oh, of these yeah. islands who are not super rich and are, who are facing real hardship as a result of it. Where are, you know, where is our progressive state government on this stuff? And I saw a great t-shirt this summer that said WTF Stands for what's the ferry? Where's the ferry? <laughs> what's the ferry? Where's I mean, the ferry? Yeah, what's the ferry? <laughs> ferries aren't novelties here. They're, I mean, they're major highways um, that a lot of people use throughout the region. So, like you said, we have a lot of wealth and money here. 
can we get that to the ferries? But some people would like those jobs to stay local and not be price wise a race to the bottom. And the know, manufacturing but, jobs, yeah, the the boat building jobs. There, there's only one company that builds boats in Washington State. Yeah, so you would kind of think. You know, yeah, but yeah, you but. know, and now they don't really want to build the electric boats, apparently. So mm. it just seems like bad decision making to me. But you know who, might, who am I to say? Do you know what the reason for that is? Why they don't want to build electric boats? Uh, they've got a bunch of. I, I don't quote me on this. Sure. Look in the Seattle Times. Okay. But, uh, but but I think it's that they have a bunch of other lucrative contracts. Okay. You know, but I could be wrong. Final maritime item before we take a break. This week, KOW got a chance to speak with the water taxi captain who last week rushed over to nudge a runaway barge away from hitting the Ferris wheel or the aquarium. Uh, King County Metro water taxi captain Dan Crable, driving the water taxi from West Seattle, saw this four-story container barge drifting across Elliott Bay. The only thing we could do, I knew by its size, we weren't going to be able to stop it. It was just a matter of trying to steer it away from the waterfront. And so I basically used the, this boat as a tugboat in order to try to push on the bow and get it steered away from the waterfront. That is the Captain Sully superhero that the ferry <laughs> system <laughs> needs badly right now. Uh, so I was away last week, but uh, I enjoyed that story. Um, shall we take a short break, come back, uh, tell you a few more things that happened this week, leave you with something to smile about? Can we agree on that? Can we agree on that much? No. I mean, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll be right back. It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke with KUOW politics reporter David Hyde, the Stranger staff writer Vivian McCall, and Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson. We talked a lot about elections today. We've talked about uh, Starbucks and its unions and the Forced Out series that Vivian's writing in The Stranger and state ferry boat woes. So let me just hit a few more things that we won't have time to get into in super depth. But so you know, national parks are free tomorrow for Veterans Day. Mount Rainier, North Cascades, Olympic National Parks, also BLM land. Uh, Seattle's OL Rain play for their first National Women's Soccer League championship tomorrow. Megan Rapinoe says she's retiring after this game. They're playing uh, the New York's Gotham FC in San Diego. Mount St. Helens is having a magma recharge event. That sounds a little bit like a gun is loaded. I hesitate to use that analogy, but it means that there is magma movement in the fractures and in the sort of metaphorical plumbing system under Mount St. Helens. State seismologist Harold Tobin there says that molten hot lava plumbing movement is causing an uptick in seismic activity. 400 plus tiny earthquakes under the mountains since midsummer. That's a lot more than usual, but Tobin says extra seismic activity doesn't always lead to eruptions. Not always. And there's no danger to the public currently. Not currently. Reassuring. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Um, oh, another another story. You remember the, uh, the Horizon Air flight last month out of Everett with the off-duty pilot who was riding in the jump seat in the cockpit. He tried to turn the engines off, tried to open an emergency exit. Ended up near the back of the plane asking to be zip-tied. Um, you know, Horizon Air is owned by Alaska Airlines. And now those airlines are getting sued by some of the passengers. Attorneys in the lawsuit say the airlines haven't explained what safety measures they took before allowing Emerson to ride in the cockpit. They're calling on courts to award passengers unspecified monetary damages to make up for travel costs and emotional trauma. I don't know. When you buy your ticket, you know there's a chance that an off-duty pilot who took mushrooms and didn't sleep for 40 hours might try to cut the engines, right? That's true, yeah. It's implied. <laughs> it's in the fine print. Yeah. The You're fine saying you know print. this from personal experience, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> who reads it, though? You just click through. <laughs> Expedia I, has the disclaimer, I hear. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. about this story a lot. There, it's Why? Very, it's just very <laughs> interesting to me. Uh, the explanation for it, the mushrooms, one of the things that really gets me is that, you know, Doctors could tell you this. A lot of American teenagers could tell you this, that like those last about six to eight hours and then yeah. you're done. He might have had a really bad time, which triggered not sleeping for 40 hours. Right. And obviously, if you don't sleep for 40 hours, you can hallucinate. You know, maybe there was some sort of psychosis involved, which could put people in sort of a dreamlike state. Like there are a lot of things going on here. I it's obviously a horrible thing to have happened. I feel kind of bad for the guy too because yeah. he obviously realized that something had gone wrong 
at the end of that's that. That's true. He sounded like oh, he was absolutely. saying, right? Yeah. That was his, seemed to be his reaction was, oh, I'm in a bad way. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, people who experience these mental health events, they can come out of nowhere. And it could have just been really unfortunate timing. But I think the plaintiffs probably have a super solid case, given that there are 83 counts of attempted murder. It's pretty serious. Yeah. I mean, the Seattle Times had a great story about how there's, they, they called it the disclosure dilemma, how if you're a pilot, it's hard to disclose that you're dealing with mental health problems because um, then it comes into your, can you fly the plane? Like, can we trust you with this? So right. they'll, they'll hide it or they won't disclose it. Um, so, of course, maybe the airlines as an industry are liable for creating this sort of environment where pilots can't disclose this. I'm, I'm sure that's at the heart of this lawsuit. And also, I mean, he, he was working for them. While he endangered lives, they're, they're going to be liable. But you're saying that the very fact that they are trying to keep people who are struggling away from flying planes, that presumably would be something the, the average airline passenger would probably want. I mean, that's what makes it the dilemma. If you're a pilot, you don't want to lose your job by disclosing that you have mental health issues. But you, you might if you disclose it. And this wasn't microdosing. Yeah. Mac- yeah. Macrodosing, if you're dealing with... Uh, mental health issues is probably not a not a great idea although as vivian pointed out this is not a if he really if he if he took mushrooms two days before he said that he did i mean he's the one who disclosed that he took mushrooms but this was not a mushroom trip if as, no. we, as we understand how psychedelics yeah. no that work. would never have it yeah. though if somebody had a certain sort of chemical makeup could it trigger right. it certainly it seems like compounding factors yeah it could be but we really don't know i just think you know, we obviously don't have a good culture set up to deal with these sort of things. And right. if somebody could lose their job because they're struggling, you know, what is somebody going to do in that situation, even if they are someone who is responsible for, you know, other lives? Like what what business, what what industry allows for that in this country to begin with? Where do we have any sort of system that allows people to say, hey, I'm struggling with this thing and the presumption not to be that you were totally incapable of doing this job in perpetuity. I'm 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 with you on that, and I did go to Reed College, so I, I'm just going to say I have some experience with um, mm. knowing of other people who have you know, <laughs> yes. done these kinds of things. Yes. You're familiar. And it just seems like if I take the job of air traffic controller or whatever it is, like I would hope that like I'm not really taking a lot of acid on the weekends or whatever, right? So there's a certain amount of uh, I don't know what happened, and I do I I, I I totally share your sympathy about you know what's the what's the stance of Alaska Airlines for people who are struggling, but the part about choosing to take mushrooms just doesn't seem like the greatest idea to me, um, potentially for, you know, depending on your, your mental state. And and part of it has to do with, I don't know that there's great information out there. I mean, psychedelic drugs are kind of like the ocean. It's, it can be scary depending on who you are. And, and, and sometimes I think we get the message, especially younger people, but even older people that like, no man, you know, you're going to go see like a a concert at the gorge, like whatever, you know? And it's like, uh, uh, that's not always true. Well, we don't have aviation attorneys here, but what I right. what I don't yet understand about the lawsuit is is it that would, would Alaska Airlines have to have done something especially wrong because they 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 allow off duty pilots in the jump seat in the cockpit that happens all the time it's very common is it just because well if something goes wrong you're liable because you're the airline or did the, do, do the passengers have to prove that they Somehow did something that they promised they wouldn't do as an airline. I I think you're liable as airlines. Uh, I mean, if you get hit by a city bus and the driver was drunk, the the city's liable for that as well. But their claim is that the passenger's claim through the attorneys is that they suffered, I believe, emotional damage, whatever the term of art is. But, you know, so the attorneys have to put that colorful language in there. Yeah, and I don't know what happened moment to moment, right? Eventually, he was in the passenger section, and I don't know what happened. But I guess I wondered if I had been, if you had been on that plane, do you think you would join that lawsuit? What if you knew that if you won, you would get no money, only an apology? Would you join that lawsuit? Like, is it about them taking responsibility, or only if, like, well, it really wasn't the airline's fault, but I could get paid, so I guess I'll sign on. <laughs> I honestly don't know if I could answer that question. I, 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 if it led to some of the positive results that you're sort of implying, then maybe, right? Like if it, if yeah. it led these companies to take more responsibility for yeah, yeah, that's the figuring out real policies lawsuit. about this, where, yeah. where if somebody is struggling, this is what our answer is. Right. This is what they should do. And then what, maybe. what is the screening process? That's something I don't know anything about. You know, it, the article in the Seattle Times, it said, you know, he passed a, 
a screening three months earlier that certified that he was good to fly. You know, one, things can change with somebody in three months. Oh. And what is that process? Is it, you know, really long? Is it complex? Is it asking really deep questions? Are pilots encouraged to be honest in that process? What happens if somebody answers, you know, the a question and they say, yes, I've been struggling with mental health and then they lose their license? Mm-hmm. You know, what what happens? What would a per- what would any person do in that situation? They don't want to lose their job. Well, we'll watch, uh, we'll, uh, watch this class action lawsuit roll on. We are at the end of our show. We got uh, less than two minutes, and I always want to leave listeners something to smile about. Was anything smile worthy for you this week, panel? I've seen a lot of videos of the orcas, which has yes. been really exciting and incredibly close to the the shore, which is always really amazing to me. They came so, right into Quartermaster Harbor at Bashan. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> These are the southern residents. Yeah, it, it's amazing. It's amazing just yeah. seeing them sort of emerge out of this this water. It, it, they're so enormous and beautiful, and they come out of nowhere. Yeah. So close to shore. It's so cool. Yeah, it's groovy. Yeah, I'm a big college football fan, so I've been following the Michigan cheating scandal, and it's just been so hilarious. It's been making me smile this whole time. Are they going down? It's getting bad, it sounds like. I don't really? know. The Big Ten is making a decision, I think, today or this weekend or something. I don't know. All right. The Houston Astros of the uh, yes. NCAA. How <laughs> about you, David? KW has launched a new podcast called Text Me Back, and yeah. I'm going to read the description here. A podcast about best friendship and making your favorite people laugh, even when this dumpster fire of a world gets you down. <laughs> I love that description. I can't wait to check it out. So that's uh, that's. I'm not even here. Just Nobody told me to advertise it, but I'm going to be checking out that podcast. Uh, Text Me Back. It's yeah. Lindy West. Very exciting. Who, who's, and, and her Megan Hatcher Mays, they were besties at Garfield, voted most likely to make you laugh. I actually do have yeah. a little bit of uh, of tape here of them talking about taking Shakespeare in high school. We ended up taking a Shakespeare class. Believe it or not, that was offered at the time, which just seems weird because now you're not allowed to read books in high school. Wait, when you say that, you mean that because all white men's work is banned by the woke mind virus. <laughs> That's right. Before Garfield had been infected by the woke mind virus, they forced everyone to read, <laughs> um, I don't know, Zora Neale Hurston or something. So that's from the first episode. They're just sort of getting, you know, it's like a get to know you. And then they, uh, yeah, they're going to talk every week about what's going on. Megan works in D.C. and uh, Lindy admits n- n- not knowing much about how that goes. And so, yeah, I'm I'm uh, looking forward also to uh, the Text Me Back podcast. Um, we got to go. And by we, I mean Vivian McCall of The Stranger, Alex Halverson, Puget Sound Business Journal, David Hyde from uh, uh, KUOW Radio. You might know it. Thank you, everybody, for being on our show this week. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Bill. Great to see you. Week in Review, produced by Kevin Kniestead, social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Bernard Wallet runs the board and makes it sound good. Thank you for listening. Let's do it again next week. I'm Bill Radke.